A couple of decades ago, I can't believe I can say that, a couple of decades ago, I went to my very first Right to Life march in Washington, D.C. with our seminary. And we were ordered, it was cold like it was this year, and we were ordered to wear jeans and jackets and boots and whatnot like that, appropriate for the cold weather. And when we got there, there's a seminarian prayer service that takes place before the march. And we went and we were there in our jeans and, and big jackets and uh, boots on. And it seems like everybody else from every other seminary was either in clerics or in cassocks and we're like, uh, oh well. And then we go out to the march and the other seminaries are unrolling their, their uh, banners, the hand-stitched, embroidered, you know, whatever seminary. And we had a bed sheet with shoe polish on it that said Borromeo Seminary. Humility, humility, and ever more humility. Things have changed quite a bit since then, but it's, it's a lot better. But back then, so we're on this march, and there were a couple of protesters in particular that stood out to me over and above all the rest. There were two people holding signs, and what made them stand out to me was that their sign said, are we next? The Right to Life March, are we next? I remember being knocked back a step and thinking, really? Did they honestly think that they could be one day just as much at risk as the child in the room? And every once in a while, I think back on them and, and wonder where they are today and what they're thinking today, especially in light of the abortion laws coming out of the state of New York, soon probably from Vermont and a few other states. One of the difficulties with being part of the pro-life movement is that the victims of pro-choice have no voice. It's easier to treat other human beings as less than, as long as you can keep them quiet. Historically, this has been the case whenever human beings are treated as less than. Enemies of the state, slaves, those accused of crime, foreign workers who make our products cheaply. In more primitive times, those who were, be, who were to be sacrificed to the gods were kept drugged, silenced, and sometimes gagged so that you wouldn't gain sympathy for them and try to stop the sacrifice. Could you imagine if you heard the pleas of the virgin before she was thrown into the volcano, you might be wanting to call a halt to it and say, you know, this whole thing is barbaric. What started this whole movement in Western culture was Jesus. He is the first recorded victim with a voice, the innocent victim for our sins, beginning the giving of a voice to all victims. And since then, and it's been terribly slow, I realize that, but it has emerged. Our culture has increasingly heard the voice of the victim, the slave, the poor, the foreigner, the enemy, and we've come to see them differently and treat them differently. When someone wants to champion a people, one of the things they do is make one of them very public, to give them a voice, right? Help them to, for you to relate to them as a fellow human being. In the Akron newspaper, The Devil Strip, 
They have a regular feature in which they interview a homeless person and ask them about how they ended up homeless, ask them about their family, what's going on, what scares them, what gives them hope, what they need. And when you get to know these people, it is more difficult to write them off as a group. Oh, those homeless people, ah. This month they interviewed Destiny, who became homeless when her parents died. She was pregnant and unemployed and lived in a tent. She said she was pretty lucky at finding food and shelter, but still there was always the possibility of being attacked. You don't have that security. And although some people treat the homeless well, others treat them as they were nothing. Fortunately, she's now in the process of getting a job and has an apartment. If you hear her story, you just might be more inclined to feel for the homeless in general just a little bit better. And it's because you heard the voice of someone who is homeless. This is the difficulty of winning rights for human beings who are too small to have a voice of their own, who are kept silent and are largely unseen. And you're not going to get to interview any of them for them to tell you about their hopes and their aspirations in the room. Or are you? There was a man with Down syndrome who spoke on Capitol Hill and his words are more important than ever now that the recent laws passed in New York have removed the facade, the phony facade, that the ultimate agenda of the pro-choice movement is to make abortions rare and safe, but that it can basically be on demand at any stage of pregnancy and under the current New York law for almost any reason. He was saddened this man with Down syndrome, that there are Americans who think that people like him should not exist because they're too much trouble, that he has to justify his existence, and that there are some who think there is no place for people like him, and that more typical people get to choose who lives and who doesn't. There's a couple in the UK who found out that there was a chance that their baby might have spina bifida, and that it was a probability that the child might have difficulties and pain for the rest of that child's life. And as they say, for the baby's sake, decided to have an abortion, and they received all kinds of sympathy from the press for killing their child. A youngish man from our parish who now lives elsewhere wrote this in response. These articles somehow find me in order to tick me off. Look, if you're looking for a child who is low maintenance and doesn't feel pain, buy a goldfish. If you think killing your baby is a better decision than letting them live with a disability, you are a fool. I have the same type of spina bifida. I'm in my 30s now, I own a business, I have a strong faith and an awesome wife. Sure, I've had a bunch of surgeries and other things. People always say how impressed they are because I've had such a hard life. I don't know what they're talking about. My life is pretty awesome. Another parishioner wrote in an unrelated post, my mother was 46 when she got pregnant with me. Everyone, including her doctors, told her to terminate, even though she was well into the pregnancy. This was 1972. 46 and pregnant was unheard of. Also, she didn't want me. The only reason I am here 
is because she was a Catholic. And today, that, that child is married with two great kids, lives in our, in our parish. Who are these people in the womb of whom God said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I dedicated you. Are there problems, even bad ones, that abortion seem to solve? Yes. But is it the right solution? No. Abortions are a symptom of a much deeper and horrible problem. And the solution is for people of faith to stop being nice. We have to stop being nice. Those who push an agenda that makes abortions desirable are not afraid to speak up, are not afraid to lose, are not afraid of being thought less of, and are not afraid to be publicly associated with their stance. And it is coming from a lot of different angles. Today in the Beacon Journal, there's an article about how terrible Christian schools are. Not general religious schools, not private schools, Christian schools. And we say we understand and we try to be nice and we don't want to press our faith on anyone and we lose hill after hill after hill and it's time for that to stop. As David Warren said, defense requires us to raise the stakes rather than submit with some limp protest to the tyranny of, more of to the moral imbecile, we must force his hand. This is what early Christians did in the face of Roman paganry. It has always been required of us, every Christian drafted at baptism. In reasoned terms, it comes to this. To prevail against us, ignorant slogans won't do. Let us show our contempt for what is contemptible. In the end, the enemy must kill us. Then by our martyrdoms, we will prevail. Parse this as they may, they cannot win.